and welcome to the third episode of the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, Executive Director of the Resilient Shift. Today, we bring you some insights on leadership during a crisis from our most recent round of weekly interviews with 10 senior decision makers in city governments and large global organizations as they're navigating their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. This round of insights is based on interviews conducted between the 27th of April and the 1st of May. As always, I have Peter Willis with me who has been having conversations with our participants every week to discuss and reflect on what he's been hearing so far. Welcome back, Peter. Good to be back, Seth. So Peter, I've really been looking forward to catching up with you this week um, following our last discussion to to see where, where you're at with the interviews and some of the things that, and the insights that you're hearing. It's been a very rich week. Uh, we're up to full strength now, five chief resilience officers from big cities around the world and five senior executives from large global companies. Yeah, I suppose that the, the first thing that has struck me this last week in the many conversations is the way that these people are all having to adapt and their organizations, leadership having to adapt to the rapidity with which their circumstances change. And they're getting used to the idea that this speed of change is kind of baked into the nature of this pandemic. One very interesting aspect has been the realization that this is actually like doing a startup in the sense that you set a course, a big audacious goal, which for a a city would be to flatten the curve and keep the peace. But then in order to actually get anywhere near that goal, you have to constantly change your assumptions and check the data and make decisions which make your earliest assumptions look way out of date very quickly. And one of the chief resilience officers was saying it felt as though we've had to create a startup within our city government, which is a very, un- it's a very unbureaucratic thing to say. And then at the same time, there's this sense of having to redesign your business, uh, whether you're a city or a corporation, because the realization of the speed of change is starting to sink in. And I read a quote, which I've shared with most of the participants in the group over the week. I think it came from Bain and Company, saying that for most business leaders, the question is not how you restart your business. It's how you start a completely new business. And I think that's a very profound insight that several of my people are coming to that realization that adjusting their previous working model is simply not going to work. And one of the city chief resilience officers has been part of literally redesigning the way the city organizes itself and functions as an administrative unit in order that it can be flexible enough going into the next few months when they expect more infections and so on. That's pretty remarkable and shows a very high level of adaptation to reality. That is fascinating, Peter. Comments or the thoughts that cities are having to begin operating like a startup. In contrast, what's also wild is we're seeing in the news that some of the largest startups and tech companies with which the economy has been largely focused on for the last 10 years in terms of investment and you know, mm. public IPOs and the like, they're crumbling because the, the investments that have been put into them and the re- pressure on returning has been so short. So at a time when we're seeing some, some giants beginning to trip and stumble, 
the, the embodiment of that ethos of how they operate is being picked up by cities and, and regular companies. It's just the irony is, yes. is wild. The speed of change and uncertainty you were talking about, I wanted to just talk about a little bit because it is remarkable and kind of takes your breath away about how fast things are changing and evolving in the second that you think you understand this pandemic and or what's happening next, you don't. And, and it's kind of, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I remember as a, as a child, I lived in Northern California in the Sierra Nevadas. I had this really profound experience as a relatively young child. I was around eight or nine. We lived up in the Sierra Nevadas and there was this wildfire and it was a very severe wildfire. And there was also some high winds. And when that happens is this, this effect that starts happening, it's called crowning. And the fire literally jumps from treetop to treetop. And I was standing with my family on one side of the valley and we were looking across and seeing this massive forest fire just sweeping down the mountainside. And our, our house was down in the valley. It was terrifying. And at the same time, one of the most exhilarating things I've ever seen in my life, the whole forest ablaze, but having no idea what direction the forest fire was going to go and how quickly it can turn, it was paralyzing. And I use this as an analogy. This pandemic is spreading like a forest fire. It can pivot and turn in ways that you cannot see. And it, it can be an incredibly debilitating and paralyzing experience. So how are these leaders dealing with this, this uncertainty and the rate of change? I mean, this is some crazy stuff, Peter. It is. Um, my impression from, I would say, all 10 of the people I'm talking to is that they are coping well. And part of the way they're doing that, I think, is through really upping the level of communication with their peers in their leadership teams. And uniformly, part of their core principle in this pandemic is to communicate downward into their organizations as frequently as possible and as honestly as possible. And I think what they've, they've realized is that um, when there's such a high level of ambient uncertainty, just like you're describing in your story, that's a very familiar sort of biochemical reaction in the human body. And if it's not quickly resolved, and it isn't because the data is still not clear and the public policy is still volatile in most countries, then that, that turns into stress. And then, particularly with people being so isolated, particularly the corporate leaders, it's a growing issue on their radar, is their staff's morale and mental health, particularly those who are either on their own at home or are managing small children and really finding it difficult to get enough sleep and to focus, and also those looking after the elderly. So, and one of their core responses has been sufficient, transparent communication. Even if they're having to talk about bad news, which some of them are, where they're talking about the way they talk about it to me is we have to conserve cash. And of course, to the employees, that means either voluntary reduction in hours for voluntary reduction in pay, as through to others realizing that some parts of their business are probably not going to make it. But the sooner you communicate openly with your people about that, easier it is to have an honest conversation along that road. You're bringing up another good point that there's this kind of immediate reaction and adrenaline and we need to handle this and we will handle this versus the, the longer term issues that begin to mount mm -hmm. from the stress that you were mentioning. And that's not just to the leadership, it's with staff, with residents. But I guess it also yeah. brings out this other issue of balancing different perspectives or forces um, at work here, which is 
hey, we need to pull together and we need to stay on point, but we also need to be very sensitive of the personal yes. um, and mental trauma yes. that our staff is going through. So you have to be respectful and thoughtful of that, but you still need to inspire them and drive them towards action to take care of people. So that's, that's a, quite a serious tension. It is. And you know what's coming out of this for me, Seth, is a realization that what we human beings uh, value most, particularly when there is danger around, is the knowledge that there are people around us who care. And I think this is a very sort of, it's almost genetically coded into us through our evolution, that when we're under threat, we retreat into our, our group. And I think we are naturally stimulated to show care for each other. And that has, I'm sure, has lots of survival benefits because we, when you feel cared for, you reduce stress levels and so on. And there's an issue of scale here, which is so interesting. If I turn to the cities for a moment, in every, every case of the five cities that I'm talking to, their policy on lockdown and, and on health matters and so on is being dictated not from within their organization, but from the national level and to a degree from state level. But of course, what they pick up is all the unintended consequences of a rational enough policy, let's be generous, at the national level. They pick up the messiness of how that is activated at the, the local level. In all the conversations I'm having, what national governments are manifesting is not care. That's not really what they're about. They're about management and control and flooding finances in to restore the economy and that kind of thing. But the care is experienced by the populations of these cities in the local expression of local regulation. Who's out on the streets patrolling that I can talk to? Who's at the end of a phone I can talk to? And so on. And just as I was saying that the corporations I'm talking to have adopted really impressive principles of care for the individual even if it slows down our return to revenue and return to full operations and so on, we go at the pace that our staff can cope with and want, and we communicate like crazy with them. So that is active demonstration of care. And I want to speculate here, this is going to tilt the balance of where public trust sits going forward. Some countries I've been watching over the last decade where care is not one of the things you would really hang on the door of your national government. And I think people are completely differently aligned to their need in this regard. And I think because this virus is going to be with us for a long time, care is going to be top of people's agenda for a long time. I may be wrong there, but it's just my sense this is, this is a real subterranean shift. Fascinating point. This one of public trust emerging is a, a much stronger signal that's going to mm. be coming out. It's really wild because I think it's fair to say many countries around the world haven't invested as heavily into their healthcare systems as you would have wanted or, or you mm. would have liked to, which this is laying bare. It's also a similar issue with regards to climate change. And we're seeing how this is big, yeah. complicated thing that not everybody has been kind of trying to tackle appropriately or quickly enough. And, and this year was a, a really pivotal year in the world because national governments around the world were supposed to ratchet up their nationally determined contributions or how they were going to reduce their emissions. And, and it wasn't looking good. And now 
we're seeing massive reductions in greenhouse gas emissions because of, of reduction in travel, air quality get better. So this issue of come bubbling up again of public trust, why haven't these things happened? Why haven't we invested in tackling climate change or developing a more robust healthcare system? I think you're right on about this issue. But I want to pull out something else you said, which mm-hmm. is when you were just talking about particularly the cities and that it's becoming one issue, particularly of management. But that makes it really hard. I mean, is that a, is that a lose-lose proposition? I mean, if, a, if cities are having to manage and companies for that matter too, how to deal with this, this virus with a, a very uneven response from national governments. And at the same time, this is not a one-size-fits-all proposition because what we're seeing is this virus is is not impacting everyone equally. People who are on the lower end of the economic spectrum, who Mm. have more people living per square foot or square meter, people in the global South who are in informal settlements and don't even have the luxury of social distancing, this is not an equal thing. Um, It's definitely affecting poor people much more greatly. So how are we dealing with this, Peter? How How are cities supposed to manage something that is exacerbating inequality? Well, gee, there are several thoughts come to me there, but I'm going to start with the, 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 the first obvious one is that the, the global south is catching this pandemic later than the global north. Yeah. And I'm talking to three chief resilience officers in the global south, one in South America, one in Africa, one in India. And it's clear that the storm is just brewing in those three regions. Um, it's certainly starting to flare up in some areas. And I think the honest answer is we just don't know how this is going to play out. There are the obvious risks that you've just pointed to of of the difficulty of social distancing. There are cultural problems around social distancing uh, as well. And then there are the underlying weakness of people's diet and underlying health issues of HIV, TB, things like that. So I'm afraid it's, uh, I'm not hearing anybody in those areas predicting with any confidence when this is going to peak and how it's going to be managed. Uh, and I suspect that civil society and business are going, to be, are going to find themselves having to roll up their sleeves even more than they already have to wade in alongside uh, municipal governments and national governments to manage as best we can. Uh, that's my sort of worst case scenario. So there's going to be all hands on deck and quite a chaotic process. But, but at the same time, I'm so encouraged watching generally, but also through these many conversations I'm having by the human spirit. I'm just so impressed by how people are adapting, responding, getting shoulder to shoulder with each other. But just on that too, I'm also curious on this thread of, again, the inequality and, and where this virus is hitting. I mean, one of the reasons we embarked on this experimental learning process here, Peter, with you is to compare companies who have footprints all around the world, to yeah. cities who are in one specific place. So I'm, I'm curious now if the global South is starting to hit this in cities who haven't, this hasn't happened to them, how are they learning from other cities? I've seen a lot of stuff happening within city networks around the world yeah. where, where mayors are sharing with each other, but I'm wondering what's happening and if, if there's an exchange between the private sector to the public sector, because companies, some of who we're talking to, who have staff and offices all over the world, they mm-hmm. have been in places where it's happened, have learned. And, mm-hmm. and one of the insights that you had a couple of weeks ago, I thought it was fantastic, which, which is 
resilience in one week shows up as an adaptation in the next. Companies are able to start learning in that time frame. Is that translating into the public sector, into cities where this hasn't happened yet? That's a very good question. On, at one level, the individuals that I'm talking to tell me that they are very interested when I send them the weekly summary, which is reasonably mm-hmm. detailed, of the insights that they've shared in their conversations. So they are they're finding it valuable to learn from each other within this group of 10. But more broadly, I suspect there is not much at the moment translating from corporate experience, global corporate experience, into global city experience. And I think having spent two years studying what happened in the Cape Town drought, um, one of the things that became clear to me there was that there was this uh, moment where the city started to engage actively with the businesses, once the, particularly once the businesses had got their own act sorted out, their own business continuity, felt they felt sufficiently settled, they didn't have to over-focus on that. They then started to look around and say, how can we help? Uh, I think that most of the businesses I'm talking with are still pretty much in that, uh, get, let's get on top of this. What on earth does it mean to reopen? And so on. that's such a huge headache that the idea of them actually looking around to say, how can we help? Is there some way we can contribute other than just sort of money and resources, but at a strategic level or even a tactical level with cities? I would love that to start happening because I think they're certainly in the drought in Cape Town here that became a very fertile conversation. But let's bear in mind that city management in a crisis has awfully little bandwidth. And I have a lot of sympathy with them because they are on kind of full alert week, month on end, asking them to engage on new types of conversations with people who might be able to help may just feel like a burden. But my belief is that there's actually, as you suggest, a lot to to learn from each other. I agree. And I I think you know, we're beginning to see that in, in, in pockets and it'll be interesting to see how much that spreads. Going back to one of the themes that we were just talking about is the inequity associated with this virus and then how that manifests itself like in different ways that people might think about. So even just within the healthcare system, it's fascinating to see that, you know, they, they've been overwhelmed and the inequity in a way of elderly retired healthcare workers coming out of retirement who are one of the more susceptible populations putting themselves in the front line. Like, is that fair? No. Are they doing it? Um, And do they have a reservoir of knowledge that they can then share with others and help train new junior staff or people that have been pulled out uh, of a particular part of the healthcare system that don't normally deal with, you know, frontline ER type stuff. It's, it's remarkable to see how that stuff is happening. and, And we're already taking that for granted in a way now, but that's a remarkable shift and leveling component. And, and similarly, I think cities are beginning to do this around transportation, food delivery, uh, how, how things are, are moving around. So with the shutdown of the schools, I think a lot of people, again, don't realize that in, in most countries, one of the mechanisms with which you care for families that are below, below you know, the, the poverty line of, of that country is there's food programs through schools. So all of a sudden, when the schools shut down, the families, the children don't have access to the meals that they were getting. So now there's communities that are figuring out how to get food to families who don't have that mechanism of, of the school systems in place or, or as an example. So I do think we're seeing this come out, Peter, but I, I, I'd be very curious to see if you can keep an eye towards this moving forward and, and what, what does emerge. But uh, particularly, I wanted to, to just push again this issue of the businesses 
coming up with solutions. And it's almost of, a, of an environment of needing to ask for forgiveness and not permission. It's interesting because your, your point, the city, city governments don't have the time to sit down and, and concoct or bake up new approaches of like, as an example, we need to make sure everybody in the city's got equitable access to the internet because it's the only way people are communicating and getting on with work. Well, how do you do that? And in fact, it's companies that are coming forward and just setting things up or turning their defunct coffee shops into wife, public Wi-Fi nodes. And, and then the city seeing that and then picking it up and, and trying to ask to replicate it or do it other places. So this, this culture of let's just figure it out and help each other versus a, a traditional, more traditional process where you would need to formally put something in place, set up a, a process, go through an RFP that's kind of out the window now. And going right back to the top of our conversation, it's the speed and uncertainty again. And what I keep hearing you talk about, what I, what I keep seeing happen um, in the world around us is, is the biggest successes are coming when people and organizations and cities are leaning in to the speed and the uncertainty, not pulling away from it, but leaning into it and accepting it as the uh, operating, just a fundamental operating practice that, that is required. Um, so, yeah, what, I mean, how does that resonate with you and what you've been talking to these folks about? I think speed and uncertainty are the keynotes of this particular phase of the pandemic and have been for the, the last two months. I worry that that's not sustainable, and yet the uncertainty mm. may go on remaining sustainable, uh, but the, this very kind of high adrenaline response may be hard to maintain. But uh, having said that, I've had conversations with three or four of them about personal kind of maintenance and how that's being talked about within their organizations. Mm-hmm. And generally, I'm impressed that this is, you know, well-being, mental health. We hear a lot about those phrases right now, although it seems a little bit, to my mind, they've been sort of hauled out of the box and they're now busy applying them in our organizations. I think they will, people will get quite sophisticated quite quickly about this. So, so I'm, I'm reasonably confident, but I do think that the, the, the emotional landscape is going to change simply because it's going to be clear that this, particularly in the countries where they haven't mastered the, the virus, like your Taiwans and New Zealands and so on, this is going to stalk the future for a while. And that's going to require high levels of alert, which are quite difficult to maintain. Right. So leaning, leaning into this uncertainty is working now, but it might create some long-term burnout. But it is good to hear that this, this well-being and mental health is, is coming through in all your conversations. So, Peter, I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of last week's conversations is playing on this concept again of, of leaning forward, but not just leaning forward in terms of the uncertainty, but leaning forward, to, as you were just saying, to the future. And I love this term. You just said stalking the future. What a cool term. But if we want to flip that around and talk about it in a positive sense, what are the things that are beginning to emerge? And is it even fair to maybe ask this question? I don't know you tell me. What, what are we learning in terms of future preparedness? And I'm thinking not what we were talking about last week, which is about how something that is happening this week is turning into an adaptation next week. I'm talking about the long term, months yes. from now, years from now. And what is there any mental capacity to kind of take what's happening? to learn from the yeah. practices that are being put in place to what it might be when we reopen. I mean, that's the big question right now. 
again, these tensions of do we reopen? Do we not? When? How? Why? Who gets impacted? But there's lots of conversations around, like, as an example, transportation, particularly in cities. The air quality has never been cleaner. And, and there's been lots of efforts from cities to for congestion pricing to remove vehicles from city centers. It's happened now. Uh, how do you continue a positive trend some, in some cases? So what's, what's this kind of, yeah, stalking the future for a better future look like, Peter? If you want to, I'm going to give you two stories of future preparedness, to use your phrase. Um, one is from uh, the Indian city. I'm talking with the chief resilience officer there. He was saying that the, his city has a big fruit and vegetable market right in the middle, and all the produce from the hinterland is traditionally trucked into there and then distributed around the city. Because that market is in the, the middle of what's now deemed a red zone within the city and therefore very slow to be unlocked. It's becoming very obvious that that's an un, it's not a resilient way to structure your food system. So they're already talking about setting up satellite markets and maybe de-emphasizing the, the central market and doing the right. same with their train system because they've got one big railway station in the middle, same problem. So they're thinking, what if we stop trains near the periphery of the city and make those into hubs instead? And I thought that was, you know, it's kind of obvious when you think about it, but someone's got to actually translate the problem into a long-term, more resilient solution. The other story comes out of a European city where there's been, a, obviously because of a major lockdown, a complete um, absence of traffic in the city. But um, because of the fear now of using public transport, uh, they are all the data is telling them as the, the lockdown starts to ease that they're going to get uh, much greater, even up to 50% more private vehicles on the streets in the center of town. So what they're doing is they're starting to close off and pedestrianize areas of the center. A, in order to give people room to move and exercise and keep distance rather than just being on a pavement, and B, to discourage this mass return to private vehicles. And they're opening up very rapidly a whole lot of bicycle lanes, basically signaling to people, here's what we want you to do. And because they've enjoyed so much clean air in the last couple of months, they're, getting their, their, they're hearing that the public actually really wants to keep the clean air. It's, it's become a prized possession of the citizens. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, right. Which is one of the hardest things that cities have been grappling with is getting the citizens to be supportive of these policies to remove exactly. cars. Exactly. Wild. So yeah. this is going to be very interesting to watch. That's all just happening in the last week or two. So that's one to watch. Well, Peter, th I mean, as usual, it's such a fascinating conversation. And these little mm -hmm. chats that we're doing is, is one of the highlights of my week to talk to you and hear everything that's happening and, and how these different elements are kind of swirling around and in a way kind of codifying action. And this week, of course, talking about the speed and change of uncertainty, the dilemmas and forces at opposition around reopening uh, when and how and why and, and to whose detriment or benefit. And then I think ending up on this kind of positive point of there are conversations, there are practices already that we've learned that are now getting thought about and applied to the future. Very heartening to hear. And uh, thanks for all the work that you've been doing, Peter. Absolute pleasure, Seth. I uh, look forward to chatting again next week. Likewise. Bye. Bye. 
All right, that's a wrap on round three. I hope you're finding these insights as compelling as I am and also useful for your own purposes. Please check back every week on our project page where we'll continue to post key insights from the previous week of interviews, as well as blog posts and new podcasts reflecting these insights. You can also leave your thoughts on what's going through your mind as you make decisions during this crisis and catch up with previous episodes of our podcast. This is Seth Schultz signing off on behalf of the project team and the Resilient Shift. Thank you for listening. See you next week.